Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, what we do not know, teach us, I pray. What we are not, make us to be by your mercy. Bless your servant as he comes. Open our ears, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Have you all found the book of Titus? (laughs) It's not the shortest book in the New Testament, but... It is short. What you have here in the book of Titus is a letter. If you've ever written a letter to somebody, you write a letter by hand, and typically you expect that person to read all of it, not just parts of it. But we're going to kind of violate that that premise, and we're only going to look at part of it tonight. What I hope to do is study all of it in a broad sense, but we're going to examine closely four verses from chapter 2. But what you see here is a letter to uh, a church planter whose name is Titus, and Titus is in a, on an island called Crete. And Crete, you could think of Las Vegas, maybe, or Reno, or a place that's notorious for certain types of behaviors and certain types of, of uh, conduct. And so Titus finds himself there, and Paul's gone off, and he's continued on church planning and spreading the gospel in other parts of, of Asia Minor. But he's left Titus there to oversee. And what you see here is a letter that's uh, given t- to him to exhort him, to encourage him, but also to provide a framework and some guidance for how to lead a church well, how to lead a number of churches well. What's happened here in these churches is that uh, false teachers have come in and become part of the church leadership who, have, uh, who claim to know Christ and who claim the gospel, but whose actions say otherwise. And so this letter uh, really is, uh, is uh, to expose them and to give Titus some instruction on how to handle false teachers. But further than that, Paul gives Titus instruction on who else who to put in place? What's the, what's the qualifications of a good church leader? 
So he gives us a portrait of what that is. And so in chapter 1, uh, as, as we didn't see, but as we will see, is an exhortation of what godly leadership looks like in a church. What's the right behavior? And how does that behavior, uh, uh, how is it in accordance with the doctrine, with what's being taught? Are the behaviors lining up with what's being taught? It says in verse 16 that these false teachers of, of chapter 1, that these false teachers' deeds deny their claims to know God. So the proof's not really there. This is who Titus is dealing with. Chapter 2 and 3 begin with this, as Pastor Barry read for us, but as for you, and so on and so forth. And so Paul takes a moment looking at these false teachers and some warnings and giving us an idea of what, what to look for in godly leadership. And then really focuses in on the church, which is us. He says, but as for you, and then he begins to exhort godly living, to encourage and to give us a framework of what that looks like, and that the right behavior is in accordance with the right doctrine. Does the walk match the talk? And then what you see here, as Pastor Barry read again, is these, these four kind of criteria, or five actually. There's older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And then he also addresses bond servants or slaves. And what you'll see is that everybody, everyone here in this room, myself included, we all fit somewhere in those four categories. And what he shows us is that the gospel uh, actually works. He provides virtues, including that, that, that have to do, you do notice the overlap, self-control, uh, submission was there, integrity, sound in faith, modeling good works. These were overlapping. So each, each category, each group he addresses is slightly different, but there's overlap. There's common themes through them. But he contrasts these right behaviors with what he's seeing with the false teachers. And that's this. Uh, he says detestable uh, behavior, disobedience, unfruitfulness, and desires for shameful gain. Things like pride and greed and lust. So what we see is really that, that the belief, the belief in something will lead to your behavior. And it's true. Your convictions, your belief on any given topic will reflect how you act on it. If you believe that the chair you're sitting in will hold your weight, you'll sit in it. And you guys have all clearly put your faith in those chairs. You believe something and then you act on that belief. And so the belief begets the behavior. So before we begin, where do you fit in that list? Which category are you in? Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And does that description, does that describe you? Does it describe you tonight? Let's look closer at our text tonight, which comes from chapter 2, verse 11 through till 14. Not only an encouragement, an exact outline of what all Christians' lives should look like, but he gives us the reason why this even matters. Let's read together, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." So not only is it an instruction and commandments for how to behave, how to act, which applies to all of us, but he gives us the reason why. He says, for. One of my first jobs was uh, Wendy's. I worked at Wendy's, and uh, I wasn't old enough to do anything, you know, that required any level of responsibility. So they gave me a, a mop, a spray bottle, and a broom. And uh, all my tasks had to do with those things. It was just a series of cleaning up tasks. And this is a really busy particular, this particular restaurant was very busy. It was right on the side of a, of a main highway 
And so I was often just busy cleaning the lobby. And this one particular day, uh, I had been sweeping the floor, what felt like countless times, and the uh, place was looking pretty good, and, uh, but I just couldn't seem to keep up with the mess. And so I go to the back, and I spoke to my manager, and her name was Karen, and she said to me, Andrew, could you please go uh, sweep the floor? As if I hadn't done it. I was, I was shocked, but I said, I said, you gotta be kidding me. I haven't stopped sweeping the floor. The floor looks great. The floor didn't look great. It was that busy. But I, what I did was I asked her, I said, what does a clean floor have to do with anything anyway? Like, why does it matter? Why does the floor need to be clean? I was a teenager, okay? So I had a little bit of uh, attitude. But I said, what, what, is a, what does a clean floor matter anyhow? And what she said was really profound. And she simply said this. She said, it has everything to do with everything. A clean floor is more important than you think. She said, if your floor is dirty, then your restaurant is dirty. So the clean floor has actually a lot more to do with just the floor being clean. But what it does is it reflects the company's values. It's, it's their image at stake. What do customers think about the floor of the fast food establishment? It says a lot more than just whether or not the floor is clean. And so I picked up the broom and I walked back out there and I swept that floor. Because I realized that I was actually bearing the weight, bearing the image of the corporation in a, in a small sort of way. I was the, we, were the, we were the face of that. We were reflecting the company's values just based on how we kept the floor. So a clean floor has everything to do with everything, but godly conduct also has everything to do with everything. And so we see that here, Paul's exhortation and his encouragement to Titus really shows us that the Christian faith is a faith that works. And I, no pun intended, but it works in the sense not only that it has outward actions, but that it works, it functions. It's a system of complex gears that all work together. It's reasonable, it's rational, it makes sense, and it works. So what we're going to look at tonight is uh, two words that Paul gives us. We're going to examine those words grace and glory. We'll see that grace has already appeared. We see that in verse 11. And we'll see that glory is yet to appear. We're living between two ages, between God's grace and God's glory. And we're going to look at what that means tonight. What does it mean to live between the two worlds, these two ages, grace and glory? And so the main point tonight is simply this. It only has two points. So I've, if you're taking notes, it'll be easy for you. But the basis of Christian discipleship is simply this, God's grace and God's glory. The basis of Christian discipleship is God's grace and his glory. One way you can understand these two words is they're, they're, they're engines, they're forces that, that are thrust upon us. And so God's grace is such that it pushes us. It pushes us to start the Christian life. But it's God's glory that pulls us. There's a pushing force and a pulling force that gets us through the Christian life, that gets us through discipleship. It gets us through this side of eternity. It's God's grace and God's glory. And so those are the two headings under which we'll study tonight, and I'll, we'll make two observations under each. All right? There you go. So first, grace. First thing I want to point out is simply this, that grace is from God alone. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's his grace that appeared, and it's his grace, and it appeared. Well, where was it? Did he hide it? Did he just create it? Where was it? Think of every night when the, the sun goes down. Does it stop existing? Does it disappear? Does it go away forever? No. It goes away, out of sight. It's still there. It exists in all of its power and all of its might and all of its splendor. But we can't see it. 
until morning when it appears again, right? It crests the, the, uh, the horizon and we get our magnificent sunrises that uh, God's blessed us with the ability to observe. The sun didn't go anywhere. It didn't stop existing. It didn't burn out, but it appeared to us and it reappears every day as it breaks through the darkness. And so it is with God's grace. God didn't just create it one day or just become gracious because he needed more friends in heaven and he thought he had to make it easier for us. He's always been gracious. His grace was always there, but it became obvious to us, uh, obvious to us. It manifested itself to us through Jesus Christ and his redeeming grace. So it says that the grace of God has appeared. It's happened. It's done when Christ came. And here's about how it went. Let's skip a few verses ahead down into the next chapter of Titus. It says this in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. This is the setting at which point God decided, I'm going to reveal my, my grace For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice that it's God who initiated it. It's from God alone. And it's not because of anything. In fact, it's, a, it's quite the opposite. It's in spite of our lack of righteousness, or in fact, our unrighteousness. God reached in. It's not because we've done anything, but it's in spite of the fact that we haven't done anything to earn it. And this, by the way, is, is an exclusive claim. No other faith can say this is true of them, that they're saved by grace. All world religions, they vary. But Christians, the Christian faith, what I find so compelling about it is that this is an exclusive claim that says that we need a savior, that I need a savior, that I'm broken. That I can't escape it, right? Some faiths would suggest that you can escape it, that a body in the physical is is broken and corrupted. A lot of people will agree on that, and you have to simply escape it. Well, you can't escape it. Or some would say that the, uh, the goal, the goal, the road we're all on is to simply just cease to exist, to reach nirvana. Our Buddhist friends would believe that. They would say that what we have to do is to just simply stop existing. The Christian faith is the only one that suggests, that believes, and that is based on the fact that we need a savior and we got one. The Christian faith works. And this is what I find is such a hard pill to swallow for so many people. Because our world doesn't do us a lot of favors. Our schools, our jobs, our social media accounts, our friends' social media accounts, or people who we think are our friends' social media accounts, doesn't do us any favors. Because our world tells us to believe that if we simply do enough good things, or if we're just good people, reasonably good, decent people, that that's sufficient for salvation. But the message of Scripture is, is quite the contrary. Even though good deeds sometimes feel therapeutic, right? Being a good person feels good, doesn't it? It's not sufficient. Good deeds are not sufficient for salvation. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23 to perhaps some of the most outwardly righteous people on the face of the earth, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. And he goes on to say, on the outward, you're presentable and you're clean and you're pure, but on the inside, it's death and decay in you. And so the same is true of anybody who's found outside of God's grace. Good deeds aren't sufficient. 
They don't, they don't outweigh, or, or God isn't appeased if your good deeds simply just outweigh your, your bad deeds, like, like karma suggests. So the purpose of the law, all the Old Testament law, you read through it, all 613 laws. If you ever need some good nighttime reading, I'd recommend that. If you ever want to feel inadequate, read through the old, some of the Old Testament law, and what you'll see is that its purpose is to show you that you can't uphold it. That's why it's there. That's why Christ had to come. Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it on our behalf. We can't uphold the law. And the very law itself shows our need for grace. That's what it serves. But grace also necessitates a contrite heart. Repentance. The grace has to be accepted. You can't force your grace on somebody. Look how gracious I am. It doesn't work. You can't force your grace upon somebody but it necessitates contrition and acceptance. But it's easy to do because it's given to you. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything to get it, but it's simply given to you. And that grace is God's. So the first thing is that grace is from God alone. And the second thing under the grace heading is that the grace never ends. God has lots of grace. That's why I like them. We get along. (laughs) Where sin abounded, their grace abounded all the more. There's lots of grace available. But when I say grace never ends, I don't just simply mean that it's a, it's a fountain of grace, but I mean that it never ends. It doesn't stop. It's not a one-time thing, but it continues. Let's look at verse 11 and 12 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I bet you've never thought of God's grace as a personal trainer. Sometimes we pay money for personal trainers who just whip ourselves into shape. I don't get that, but we do. You ever thought of God's grace as a trainer, as a personal trainer? Even the most elite athletes, I like to follow sports. Even these, these elite athletes who are playing at the, the peak level of you know, their particular sport still train. They go to training camp. They do conditioning on their off days. They're practicing. They're working out. Is it because they're already there? No. It's because it's a continual process. It's a continual discipline to be trained. And the training doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. So it's God's grace that trains you and I, followers of Jesus. It's God's grace that serves as a trainer to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower, is to to be trained, to let God's grace train you, to let the word of God be your trainer, is what it means to be a disciple. So when I say discipleship, that's exactly what I mean. It's that journey that isn't over. It's the journey of becoming more like Christ. We're raising, uh, my wife and I are raising two kids right now, and many of you are raising kids or have raised kids, uh, and that is, is a great, I don't know a lot about being a parent, okay? But I've learned a few things. And the, there's two primary ways you can raise your child and you can, you can raise them and, and help to grow them and to teach them. And the first is by discipline, okay? There's more, but I've broken it down into two. Is discipline, which is to correct, okay? So you might pull your kid out of harm's way. You might correct them on a behavior that isn't appropriate. So you can correct and discipline things, but you can also affirm and reinforce positive behavior. So there's this correction, and there's this reinforcement. And what you'll see is through every stage of being a parent, your issues are different. So I'm in the four and under stage. Some of you are the 
14 and under, and some of you are, have 40-year-old kids. But each stage, your, your kids need you, but in a different way. And so I hope that your 18-year-old at home isn't still running around the house with scissors, okay? You work through, it's a continual process, but at each step, your child depends on you in a different way. But the two are still the same. It's reinforcement and discipline. It's, it's a process. And for us spiritually, it looks like this. It looks like God's, God's grace needs to train us. It corrects us, and it helps us to admonish. It admonishes us. It disciplines us and corrects us from what's evil, but it also teaches and affirms and builds up what is good. It's a process. If it weren't a process, David wouldn't have written these words, son, Psalm 51, verse 10, after sinning gravely, sinning very, very deeply, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Renewal. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It's a process because we're broken, because we're in need of God's grace. So it's a continual battle against ungodliness, but it's a continual striving towards self-control, upright, and godly lives, which, by the way, affects, you'll notice, every sphere of your life. Look at this with me. Self-controlled. Who's the best judge of whether or not you're self-controlled? You are. It affects your, yourself, how you live, what goes on in your mind and in your heart. Only you know that. God knows it more, but you know it more than anybody. Upright. Integrity. That has to do with your relations, relationships with others and godly lives. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Yourself, others, and the Lord. So you see the Christian faith works. I hope by now you're starting to see this, that it works. It crosses every sphere and every scope of your life and every relationship you can have, whether that's a friendship or a marriage or something else. And so the question, if this is a process, well then what's the deal? Am I saved or am I not saved? And the correct answer would be yes. It's both. You've been saved. God's grace has appeared, but it's not done yet. You will also be saved every day through this process of sanctification. You're being saved and I'm being saved. As we ask the Lord, we, we, we plead with him to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. It's a process of continually being saved. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It knows the thoughts and it pierces through our consciences. You see, the sole work of the gospel isn't done. It won't end yet. It will end, but it won't end yet on this side of eternity. The sole work of the gospel is never done. So we've looked at God's grace. Let's change gears to God's glory, which again is the second engine. It's that pulling force that pulls us through to the finish line of the Christian faith, of the race. Verse 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So when we think about God's glory, there's two observations we can make based on this text. And the first is that glory, God's glory, will change everything. It changes everything. And here's what I mean by that. There's a, there's a story of the late queen mother of uh, 
Queen Elizabeth and Margaret. So when they were girls, when they were princesses, and the queen mother would take them out, pack them up in the car or whatever, the chariot, I don't know. They would go to these other royal functions, eat in the castles of other royalty. She would say these words. She would say to them, royal children have royal manners. In other words, be polite, kids. Don't embarrass me. (laughs) Right? Uphold the royal name. Uphold the royal family. Behave in such a way that you won't make a disgrace to royalty. Uphold this image and don't defame it. And so your identity, their identity, these, these young girls' identity, leads to their behavior, right? By having good manners and by, by having royal manners, they don't become royalty, but because they're royal children, they have royal manners. It's their identity that really changes everything. So that's the first thing we see is that we receive a new identity. You'll notice in verse 11, it says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, which comes from the men, the women, the older men, the older women, and the bond servants. All people, all types of people, the salvation is available to. So it goes from wide to narrow because it goes from all people and then suddenly the language shifts to words like us and people and ours. We have a new identity and we belong to Jesus Christ because of what he's done. And it's him who redeemed us from a lawlessness and purified for himself a people for his possession. Anybody ever rented a car? Okay. Do you drive that rental car the same way you drive your own car? No, you don't. That's why they just flog these things when they're done with them. They just give them away. Because so many people treat them like they're rentals, and they are. But when you own something, when it's your possession, you prize it. I hope you do. It's your car, at least. You cherish it, right? You care for it. That possession is the kind of possession that Jesus possesses his people. He cherishes us. He values us. He loves us. He's excited about us when he thinks about us. And not only that, but we've just come from our series in, in Revelation a few months back. And you hear the word sealed a lot. Not seal like the mammal, but seal like the seal. We're sealed is how the New Testament describes it. We've been sealed and we've been paid with a down payment partial. It's not fully there yet, which is why we're being saved all the time. It'll be completed one day, but we've been sealed, and in the meantime, we belong to Jesus Christ, and we've received a new identity. But that new identity then leads to a new purpose, right? To a new goal, to new marching orders based on what your identity is. If royal children have royal manners, what do truly royal children, children of the king of the universe, have? I get asked this all the time. So I'm the pastor to youth and young adults here. And I get asked this all the time from youth and young adults who are in transition, like changes, phases of life, right? Graduating high school or not sure, taking a gap year, whatever it might be. And I hear this question all the time. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. What's the purpose of life? And I just look at them because <laughs> I don't know. No, I do know. I do know what the purpose of your life is. And Paul to Titus gives him a fantastic response to that question. What's the purpose of life? Well, if you're a Christian, the answer is easy. You're not a Christian. I'm not so sure. But if you're a Christian, look at, look with me in chapter 2, verse 9, when he's addressing the bond servants. Paul says this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. If you're a Christian this evening, your purpose is to make God look good. 
Your purpose is to adorn the gospel by your conduct. Certainly one of them. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That the word of God, chapter 2, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled or spoken poorly of or hated or maligned because of something someone's seen in you. Verse 8, that an opponent would be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And so how you live really matters. What would people say about you based on your identity or your claim of your identity in Christ? And how does that line up with your purpose and your conduct? Does your behavior affirm or deny your claim to know Christ? But you see, this isn't a, this isn't a back to where we started, this isn't a trap then into legalism where suddenly we just have to do all these good works and fake our way through it. It's not a trap back into legalism, but it re- reveals to us our true freedom that we actually have in Christ to live in such a way that we can hold our hands up and live transparent lives and say, find a fault in me. My identity is in Christ and my purpose also is in Christ. Look at my life. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. <laughs> he doesn't say he's perfect, but he says, my goal is, is the cross. It's Christ, so follow me and do what I do. Can you say that about yourself? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. A friend of mine who's a pastor, he's been a pastor for a lot of years. Him and I were speaking about this tension between, as pastors, there's a sort of a public aspect of your life, right? Your employment and where you work and the, the private side of life. Because you're a pastor, it's, it's different from uh, other types of work. You're never really off when you're in the grocery store and you, you see somebody. And it's just part of the life of being a pastor. And uh, it's, it's part of how it goes. And it's, it's a gift. It truly is. We were speaking about this tension between private and public life and how do we handle this and godly conduct. And you know one of the things he said to me that was really compelling was he said that you could follow me around 24 hours a day, seven days a week with hidden cameras all you wanted. He said, aside from being uncomfortable and being a violation of my privacy, he said, you could do that. And what you'd find after looking through the tapes, watching the tapes 24-7 as long as you wanted, he said that there wouldn't be a single thing in my public or private life that you would find on those tapes that would disqualify me from my ministry or from my claims to knowing Christ. So can you say that? If we were to follow you around for 24 hours to places where you think you're alone, does your conduct affirm or deny your claim to know the grace and glory of God? It should compel others. No one looks at a Christian's life and says, ah, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to be more patient. I don't want to love other people. No, our job is to adorn the gospel. Draw people in to compel them to see the God for his glory and his majesty. We aren't those things, but we get to reflect them. So glory changes everything. And the second is this, and it's shorter is that glory is already, but not yet. It's already, but not yet. Paul says, we're waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for our blessed hope. As, as a parent, I'm, we're always looking for things that will make our lives a little bit easier. And parenting in 2019 is a real great thing because there's all sorts of tools and gadgets that make parenting great. One of these things we've discovered is called a grow clock. And it's a device that teaches your child, my three-year-old, not how to tell time, but it teaches them about time. And so it's a clock you put on uh, in their bedroom somewhere familiar, and it does two things. 
And the first thing it does is it displays a sun, a happy, smiling sun with an orange background in the daytime. And it displays a dark, sleeping star at night. And so mom and dad pick the times. And what you do is when it's bedtime, you turn the clock to go to bed. And then when it's morning time, the, the sun will come up. And so it took my son some time to getting used to. But what we found was that he, would, he started to wake up. I don't know when, because I was asleep. But he wakes up and he sees that it's not morning time yet. So he goes back to sleep. Or he sits in his bed and waits for morning. Because he doesn't know when. He can't tell the time. And it's all irrelevant to him when the time is. But he knows that the sun will turn. He knows that the sun's going to wake up. But he doesn't know when. But more recently, this is what I want to share with you. More recently, we've noticed that instead of just waiting and staring and being lazy in his bed for who knows how long, what we've noticed is he's been so excited for the sun to come up. He's so excited for the day to begin, for a new day to get to preschool and do all of his other three-year-old activities. He's so eager and so excited that he begins to make his bed. He puts his toys away. I'm not making this up. He puts his laundry, all his dirty laundry, back where it needs to go. His room is spotless. And so when it's morning time, he's ready to go. He doesn't know when the clock's going to turn, but he knows that the sun is going to come up. And when it does, he's ready. He's eager, he's longing, and he's expectant for the sun to come up. And so how are you preparing for the sun to come? Is it an eager, longing waiting? Or do you not even believe it's true? Glory is already, but not yet. We wait for our blessed hope. Hope is blessed. Hope is happy by its nature. But when God sends Christ to finish his work, here's what it says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, about Jesus. That he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus is the full extent. It's the full, he's the full scope and the radiance of God's glory. And I'm not sure I fully understand that or can begin to fully understand that. But we know that God's manifested his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't kind of this tag-along little brother of God, no. Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's co-equal and co-powerful, co-eternal with God the Father, and God's given him and manifested his whole glory through the person of Jesus. And one day his glory will fully appear, and that's the pulling force that pulls us through to the finish line where we will receive the crown. That's why it's called glorification when God's glory is fully revealed to us in the last day. There's a story in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses is meeting with God, and Moses at this point has been leading the nation of Israel for some time, and they've been stubborn and they've been stiff-necked. And in Exodus 33, he's meeting with God, and he says to God, show me your glory. And God says, you do not know what you're asking. He says, I can't show you my glory because if no one shall see my face and live. But he says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'm going to hide you behind a rock in the cleft of a rock. And he says, I'll walk by. And you won't see me, but I'll hide you in the, in the rock with my hand. And as I walk by, you won't see me, but you'll see my backside. God says, that's what I'll do for you. And Moses is like, okay, I'll take what I can get. And so he does that. He hides behind the rock. God hides him behind the rock. And he walks by. And it says that his skin, the skin of his face shone. And when he got down, he was speaking uh, to the leaders of, of, of Israel, to the leaders of the nation, and it says that they were afraid to come near him, for he had been with the Lord. They were afraid by seeing the face of someone who had seen the backside of the glory of God. They were afraid. 
So I don't know what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And I don't know when. And if anyone tells you when, please ignore them. They don't know either. But when he comes, his glory will be fully revealed. Now here's, here's why we call it glory, because as children of God, it is glorious. It's exciting. It's a blessed hope. But it's also a threat. If you're outside of God's grace and God's glory, God's glory should terrify you. Because it's through God's glory, it's by his glory, which he saves but it's also his glory and his holiness with which he condemns, with which he judges sin. So this evening we're approaching the Lord's table. We have an opportunity to rejoice and celebrate and thank the Lord for his atoning work through Jesus. But it also allows us to look ahead, to see, the, see how far we've come in the Christian life. But we also anticipate the glory of God fully arriving when Jesus returns. So here's how communion works. The way, the way it works is that it reminds you not only of, of who you are, like we discussed, reminds you of your purpose, reminds you of God's grace, reminds you of God's glory. It reorients the compass of your heart. If you've ever had a compass, sometimes it wanders, and depending on where you go, you need to adjust the declination. You need to adjust the compass. So when we come to the Lord's table, it does that. It reorients our posture to God's grace and God's glory. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To reorient your heart, to be reminded of who you are, to eat the bread and to drink the cup, proclaiming the Lord's death until his return. Father, for your grace, I'm truly thankful. And for your glory, I'm also thankful as we await our blessed hope to arrive. Lord, thank you for your atoning work that saves us, that reaches into our lives and saves us, not by anything we've done to earn it, but by your grace. Thankful for that, Lord. I pray for my friends who are here that you would do a work in our hearts and remind us that we're a people, that you've saved us, that you've changed our identity, and would our lives reflect, would our lives affirm such a claim. Lord, forgive us for our iniquities, Forgive us for our sins. I pray that you would continue to draw us near to, uh, to help us to pursue things that are upright and godly. Lord, it's by your grace that we're saved and by faith in Jesus alone. And so I ask all these things by the power of Jesus' name. Amen.